sadness, even the anger, through the lens of Scripture. We know there are many things that we could speak of. The many worldview applications are far-reaching. Yet just as we spoke of last year on this anniversary, the message has not changed. It will be repeated word for word. As we process an event like 9-11, what matters? What is the solution? What can actually change a heart that would even perpetrate such an evil on a society? What are we dogmatically focused on here at Harrison Hills? What saves men? We seek to be a people who understand, who preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only the gospel that redeems fallen hearts that are bent on destruction. That's the euangelion. That's the good news. In a plan put into motion before the foundation of the world, Jesus left his throne in glory, coming as a human, being fully God and fully man, living a perfect life of righteousness that none of us could have lived. He defeated death and hell on the cross, and the Father signaled his approval of that sacrifice by raising him from the dead on the third day. And now as believers in Christ, we have his death applied to us, imputed to us. Jesus' death that we deserve to die. And equally, we are given his perfect life as well. Applied to our account as a positive righteousness. That we might have something to offer our king on that day we stand before him. The gospel proclaims that in Christ, God made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Being able to simultaneously forgive sinners and uphold justice by giving us a substitute. Jesus taking our place. Taking the Father's wrath upon himself. Now we might be called friends of God. Children of God because of what Christ has done. That's the gospel. Or put more simply in the words of John Newton. Quote, although my memory's fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. This is the only message that can actually transform and make a new creation out of a fallen one. The gospel does not fix up the heart we have. Jesus Christ did not come to do a patch job. The cloth would just shrink and tear. No, the old heart cannot contain the new wine of salvation. The old heart would burst in an instant to be infused with such a pure and foreign righteousness. Nor can the gospel of works contain the new wine. It would be exposed for the charlatan gospel that it is. There is only one door. There is only one gate. The way is narrow and few find it. And this is a message of peace to those that would heed it. The prince of peace will call you his own. You will have a brokered peace with God that cannot be broken. You will no longer be a hireling or a worker, but you will be called sons and daughters. The gospel is a message of great peace to those that will come to him in repentance and faith. Euangelion. This is good news. But the existence of peace means that there must be a war from which to proclaim and declare peace. Peace is not natural in this world. Peace must be strived for. The natural inclination of man is to war. To war against each other. To war against the very God who made them. 
Scripture tells us that they have made themselves enemies of God through wicked works. There can be no peace for that person between them and their creator. But the Prince of Peace stand between us and perfect justice. We will most certainly perish. Anyone who falls on this stone, Jesus said, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. If this does not sound like a God you care for, if this does not sound like the God you came to when you repented, Scripture says you came in the gate another way. You must go back and come in the wicked gate. Go back and come in the narrow way where we do not tell God what he is or how we will serve him. We see him as he is and we submit ourselves to his rule. Beloved, if this sounds harsh or alarmist, then friends, we're skipping parts of our Bible. If this sounds extreme or intense, the consequences of sin of aircraft being flown into buildings. That's intense. Thus, the declared message that when received stops such events from happening must be met with the same intensity. The depth of the problem determines the extent of the solution. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The consequences of failing to heed are deadly. Here and in eternity... As we look around our country, it appears we have not learned the lessons of that tragic day. We continue to thumb our nose at our maker. We are in such rebellion to our creator that we tell God today that he doesn't even have the right to tell us what gender we are. But saints, scripture tells us that judgment begins at the house of God. For a moment on 9-11 and in the weeks to follow, the churches overflowed. Most of those people are nowhere to be found today. And that's an indictment upon the church. We cry out in response to 9-11, never forget, never forget. And yet, we have forgotten. We have forgotten our first love, Paul told the church at Ephesus. We have failed to hold to correct doctrine and to drive out false teachers. We have forgotten. What if those who swarmed the doors of the church after 9-11 found the pure gospel of hope waiting for them in hearty doses? No games, no buffoonery, no plain church trying to look and sound like the world. Beloved, we have the answer. The message hasn't changed. We will speak this verbatim every anniversary. The call is the same. Be reconciled to God through Christ. The answer to 9-11 has no political solution. No diplomacy of man can halt it. It is only the gospel that changes a heart and a nation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, one brief note of reminder before we begin this morning. We will be sending out a reminder email midweek as well, but next Sunday is going to be a topical message. I know, unusual for us. Speaking to our future as a church body and our denominational ties. This is a message you will not want to miss. So these are important times, critical times, where truth and fidelity must be contended for and stood upon. So make an effort to be here next week for this much-needed message. Well, last week we finished what began as a most audacious scene. 
As you recall, James and John are sons of thunder, bringing along mom in a private meeting with the master to see if they could pull down some divine privilege from Jesus. Of course, requesting to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. And it was a request that was birthed in both pride and ignorance. And yet Jesus was so gentle in how he responded, wasn't he? In how he corrected them. It was so instructive for those that are quick to be critical or harsh. We don't see that example in our Savior, do we? And of course, we saw last week that the other disciples who had heard this audacious request from James as John as well, and it stirred up what? It stirred up anger in them. This was not a righteous anger, which we taught on ex- extensively. This was an unrighteous anger. This was an anger that had, they, that had them beat to the punch. James and John were asking for something that they wanted themselves. So they became indignant. Now, we were not told if this was a, a verbalized anger or, or merely a sinful disposition of their heart. But either way, Jesus moves to swiftly squash this deadly attitude. As any good teacher does, Jesus uses this prideful request and this sinful anger of the heart as an opportunity to not only train his twelve, but to make one of the clearest statements in the Gospels about why he came. We saw in our text last week a summary statement, if you will, of the entire Gospel of Mark contained in verse 45. All of the magnificence of the coming of the Son of Man, the Son of David, Messiah, was encapsulated into one clear statement. Jesus proclaimed, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Of course, one would think that such a statement would have stopped the disciples in their tracks, That it would have humbled and even shamed their hearts as they were being exposed. But sadly, as we saw, even if we were to fast forward to the Last Supper, the disciples were still wrangling over who would be greatest. Beloved, we mustn't miss this beautiful aspect of Scripture. All of our heroes of the faith, notice that Scripture shows their every wart. Scripture shows these men and women that God has given us to emulate and learn from who would do great and mighty works for the kingdom that they were eminently flawed people. That is such a testimony to the truth of Scripture. Look at the writings of any other sacred text and you'll see that their heroes of their stories are deified and they're idolized. They would never dream of showing or portraying weakness in their heroes. They're superhumans with no flaws. No, Scripture is given for our instruction and our edification. How encouraging to know that the men whom God would use to shake the ancient world to its knees knew the same struggles that we know. Take that encouragement away when we see time after time of the disciples struggling. What a blessing. What a testimony to truth. So I pray that the last two messages were a blessing to you. But today is a very special day on our journey through Mark for a few reasons. We begin, we began the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark four months ago. Four months. And today we at long last will be completing this incredible chapter. But it ends in a very special way. 
There's a greater meaning to the separation of the stories than we often realize. There are great undercurrents of storyline and narrative and the whole redemptive timeline that's at play. Of course, we try to highlight those as often as we can, just like the ending of chapter 10, which is in fact Jesus' last public act of healing, the last miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is it. More on that later. So it'll be a challenge to fit this entire wonderful scene into one message, so we're going to have to dive right in this morning. I hope you have your jogging shoes on. With that, let's look at our text this morning, beloved. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, get up, he is calling for you. And throwing off his outer garment, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered him and said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this text for us. This man called Bartimaeus, that we might know him. And Lord, that through him we may know you and your heart better. Holy Spirit, you wield the bow of your word. And we ask that it would find its mark this morning as we submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, again, we have so many treasures to mine here. As you know, this is more verses than we usually cover in a single sermon. So we're going to dive right in here, beginning with our first verse, verse 46. Verse 46 begins, then they came to Jericho. Now pause there. Now, by now, our regulars at Harrison Hills, they know the incredible importance of geography in our context. Now, Mark is not interested in taking us to a geography or a topography class. We're told our geography because it matters. It matters to the narrative. It matters in the tapestry that's being woven. And here it is certainly true. Then they came to Jericho. Well, first, very quickly, who is they? Of course, this is Jesus and his disciples. But as we'll see later in the verse, it is also a large crowd. These were primarily Jews, right, that were caught up following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem for Passover. This would have been men, women, and children. But what about this place? What about Jericho? A few things that will lend us some color. Now, interestingly, this is the only place recorded in Scripture of Jesus visiting the town of Jericho. Now, why do you care about that, Lanesville 2022? You care about that because of Jericho's location. Now, Brooks records that Jericho is, quote, five miles west of the Jordan, six miles north of the Dead Sea, and 15 air miles or 21 road miles northeast of Jerusalem. In other words, we're almost there. 
We're almost there. Through our entire walk through Mark, recall many messages ago, we would identify turning points in Jesus' ministry where we knew from here on out that he was heading where? Jerusalem. We watched as Jesus' locations changed as the entire redemptive timeline is pushing toward culmination, toward Calvary. And here now in Jericho, Jesus has crossed the Jordan River from Perea into Judea. He's on the road that passes through Jericho, which is about 700 feet below sea level. Again, why tell us that? Because this was Jesus' last stop prior to the beginning prior to beginning his ascent into Jerusalem. Jesus would ascend over 3,000 feet from the very lowest at Jericho. Now every step forward was an ascent to the holy city. We're meant to see the inauguration. This is it. This is the last stop. The Passover lamb is making the climb. He is making the ascent to be sacrificed. So have this location in your mind, saints. Jesus is now only about 15 miles away from where he will give his life. Visualize that as we move forward in our scene. Now it should be said that Jericho was, it was a very wealthy city. It was extremely well-to-do. It was built by Herod the Great. It had many luxurious properties. It was known for its many fine qualities. And of course, those attract, attracted those who were forced to beg. So there would have been many beggars in Jericho because of the wealth. So the presence of our man, Bartimaeus, today is not at all unusual. Now we see back in our text that Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd. Now again, this would have been quite normal to have big crowds like this, especially on this road. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem was known as being particularly dangerous. It was known for robbers and criminals. Consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where did that take place? On the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a dangerous road. So most traveled in large groups, as we see in our text. Now as our first actor is about to enter our story, Bartimaeus, we would be be neglecting it if we didn't talk about another man that Jesus met in Jericho, even though Mark does not tell us about this encounter. It was in Jericho that Jesus met a man named Zacchaeus. Now, if you're like me, you can't help but hum the children's song when you hear that name. I know someone out there just did. Yes, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But what a story of redemption and of salvation. In the lowest place, Jericho, on the last stop before Jesus makes his ascent, two amazing events take place. Salvation, two salvations, and a healing. One theologian compared it to the last ray of light of Jesus reaching out in his public ministry, calling people to himself before the lights begin to go out, before evil men will have their way. This is the final hurrah here in Jericho. If Jesus were to walk straight through, he could be in Jerusalem in one day. That's how close he is. We are a week from his death. Though Mark will take a long time to get us there. The remainder of Mark will be the Passion Week. Sometimes it's easy to forget or to get lost in the timeline. Well, back to our text here. Now we have an introduction. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, 
was sitting by the road. Well, as you can guess, we have much to see here. Four things I want us to observe. Four things. He's blind. He's a beggar. And we're not only given his name, but we're given his family name as well. And Mark never does that. And we see where he was when Jesus passes by. Well, addressing the first, do we consider why we see blindness so often in Scripture? Now, yes, we have the blind with us today, but it seemed to be much more prevalent in those days, didn't it? How many miracles of Jesus revolved around blindness? It was so common that Jesus used it as a well-known analogy for one's spiritual state, for our blindness. And of course, blindness was a result of all the normal suspects of birth defects and disease, etc. But very interesting, it was also pervasive in this region for another reason. It had to do with how people heated their homes. And I found an interesting, an ancient source that recorded this phenomenon firsthand in the ancient East. He writes, quote, The ash heaps are extremely mischievous. On the occurrence of the slightest wind, the air is filled with a fine pungent dust, which is very injurious to the eyes. I once walked the streets counting all that were either blind or had defective eyes, and it amounted to about one half of the male population. The women I could not count, for they are rigidly veiled. Close quote. Who would have thought? How interesting is that? But not only that, but we've taught many times how sickness or blindness was treated by the Jews. They were prosperity gospel junkies. You were sick because why? You were cursed of God. If you had enough faith, you weren't or weren't in sin, then you wouldn't be sick. That's what they were taught. That's what they believed. So the sick were ostracized. They were put out of the synagogue. Of course, this was what made things like leprosy, for example, so doubly devastating. Meaning today, Bartimaeus was a man rejected. He was a man assumed cursed. He would sit by the side of the road to hopefully receive alms. Alms were required Jewish giving to the poor. So he is blind. He is a beggar. What about our third observation? That Mark gave his name and his family name. Mark never does this. It's not his style. So why record this? Well, we can explore the answer in the form of a question. What happens when Jesus saves a person? When he heals them? When he sets them free? Are they passionate about their Lord and their new heart, the new faith that has been deposited in them? And what if this Jesus, while the whole world passes you by, they ignore you sitting on the side of the road, this Jesus stops. Jesus responds to your plea for help. He lifts you out of the dust and he restores your sight. How might you respond? What will define your life from here on out? Well, we have every reason to believe that Bartimaeus was a very well-known figure in the early church by the time that Mark wrote his gospel. So instead of just being an anonymous beggar in a story, this was Bartimaeus, the Bartimaeus. Yes, that Bartimaeus. It would have meant something to the early hearers and the readers. That's why Mark includes his name. Now what happens now as our story unfolds? Watch what happens, beloved. Verse 47. <clears throat> and when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. Could we not just camp there? <laughs> to be sure we could. We, he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene. Now that information is from the crowd. That's not a salvific title. It's a place of geography. It's where he was from. But Bartimaeus doesn't call out, Jesus, Nazarene. What does he cry out? Jesus, son of David. Now we've covered that title in depth on previous messages, but to suffice to say, it is a title of Messiah. 17 verses in the New Testament describe Jesus as the son of David. It is one to be the Messiah. He must, in, if one is to be the Messiah, he must be of the lineage of David. Now we skip over the genealogies or what, what's known as the begats in Scripture at our peril. Consider Matthew 1 at the beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And it continues on through the lineage, down to verse 5, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. And David, he was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And on down it goes to verse 15. And Eliud was the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations, from Abraham to David, are 14 generations, and from David to deportation, Deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, Bartimaeus cried out. Now, does this indicate that Bartimaeus held a salvific knowledge of Jesus? Was he born again at this point? Not necessarily. He knew enough to know that Jesus was the son of David. He had an essence of faith. He had a budding faith. But up until this point, he had yet to cry out. But cry out he shall. And this cry is the cry. Have mercy on me. Mercy. A pleading to not receive what we justly deserve. When one pleads for mercy, they do so out of an acknowledgement that they have a debt that is owed, a punishment that is due, but we beg compassion. When we're pulled over for speeding, we are due a ticket, yet we plea for mercy. Do not give me what I deserve. This is the disposition of the heart that has been humbled, that claims no merit. Those who come to Christ must come this way. This is the narrow gate that we've spoken of so many times. No one comes dancing through the narrow gate or strolling through the narrow gate. It is a place of crying, Son of David, have mercy on me. But Bartimaeus is going to experience what every person who comes to Christ will experience. The world will shout you down. They will tell you to be quiet. They will tell you, who do you think you are? Especially you who are blind, an obvious sinner, 
Who are you? I know who you were. I know what you've done. Don't get all religious on me now. Don't waste your breath calling out to this Jesus. He won't hear. He won't respond. Verse 48. Verse 48. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. Sternly telling him. This is not passive. They really want him to be quiet. Now, I won't go beyond the scope of the text here, but I can't tell you how badly I wanted to run with that. So what does he do? But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the cry of a desperate faith. That's the cry of of a man who does not care what others think of him. That is a man not paralyzed by the fear of men and what they can do to him. This man, Bartimaeus, does not care. He's like the tax collector in Luke 18 who would not even lift his eyes toward heaven. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The whole world, all of Israel, who has sight, who can see Jesus in front of them, are blind as can be. Yet it is the blind man that can see. And so he cries out all the more, like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, I'll not let go until you bless me. The desperate one who does not care what the world thinks, who runs after and cries out after their Savior, that is the one who stops Jesus in his tracks. That is a desperate faith. That is a saving faith. Watch this, verse 49. Verse 49. And Jesus stopped. Praise the Lord. What is the cry of faith? What is the cry of desperation? What is a broken and contrite spirit? What is it that makes the Lord of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, stop? And if there is something that makes Jesus Christ stop in his tracks, ought we to know what it is, dear saints? I am on the last leg of my journey to save my people, and I am going to stop. I'm going to stop for someone the world would pay no mind to, that has no affection for, that was considered a throwaway. J.N. Darby, he commented, quote, Joshua once bade the sun stand still in the heavens, but here the Lord of the sun and the moon and the heavens stand still at the bidding of a blind beggar. Who is this Jesus? Who can comprehend the infinite depth of his compassion for all of us blind beggars in this fallen world? Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage. Get up. He's calling for you. When the master bids you come, you come. Take courage, it does. But Jesus calls to restore us, to heal us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to set us free, to walk in newness of life. He calls us to himself that we might be given a new heart with new desires and new affections. You're going to be changed when the master calls for you. But take courage. Get up. He's calling for you. All the noise and the hostility of the crowd didn't matter. All the naysayers didn't matter. No, I will not be quiet in my desperation for Christ. Bartimaeus cries out all the louder. Behold, Jesus stops. Jesus calls. And what is the response of Bartimaeus? Verse 50. 
and throwing off his outer garment, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Can you see it, beloved? Oh, what a response! Uh, Why does Mark tell us that he threw off his outer garment? Because that was all he had. That was his sole possession. He was a beggar, and he abandoned it, and he threw it on the ground, and he jumped up, and he came to Jesus. What a picture of salvation before our eyes. Verses that we might be tempted to gloss over in our reading, that we might stop and behold the beauty This is the response of the elect when Jesus calls. Many came to Jesus and many left Jesus. One would spend three years by Jesus' side and was a devil the whole time. But behold the desperation of a saving faith. We have thrown off our robes, we have abandoned our former life, and we have run to Christ. And when we do, we will be forever changed. Bartimaeus will be forever changed. Watch Jesus' response, verse 51. And Jesus answered him and said, What do you want me to do for you? Now hang on a second. Where have we just heard that before? Look above, you're on the same page, chapter 10, verse 36. Look at verse 36 to James and John. There it is again. What do you want me to do for you? Exact same question. The suffering servant has come to serve, not to be served. What do you want me to do for you? Now, does Jesus not know what Bartimaeus wants? Of course he does. He knew what James and John wanted as well. But it is through our action of prayer and of voice that we express our reliance and our need for the Lord. Jesus does not ask Bartimaeus to speak for Jesus' benefit. It's for his own. James 4.2 tells us you do not have because you do not ask. And so Bartimaeus asks. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Now pause and consider this. What kind of faith does this require? There is no doubting. There are no caveats thrown in. I want to regain my sight. Where does such a faith come from? What fuels a desperate faith? Very simply, it is the sensing of a desperate need that fuels a desperate faith. How keenly aware is Bartimaeus of his need? He lives in complete darkness. The blinding sun is blackness to him. Every second of every day, he is confronted with his need. It lives ever before him. The desperation of our faith is directly proportional to our perceived need. Beloved, this is why the law must come before grace. The law must show us our true state, our true condition. It must show us how blind and how helpless we are. And that now forms the chalice that a desperate faith makes for grace to be poured into. It is only this cup of desperation that can hold such a grace. We cannot come to Christ any other way than our dear brother Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Cry even louder. 
son of David, have mercy on me. I am desperate. My blindness is ever before me. Yet what was not his blindness a blessing though? Was it not a blessing? It drove his desperation. Did it not? It reminds me of Johnny Erickson Tata. Very famous paraplegic from a a diving accident. How many times she said that her paralysis was her greatest mercy. It drove me to Christ. And how can that be a bad thing? If there is a trial in your life, if there is a thorn in your life, let it drive you in desperation to Christ and it will have done its perfect work. Don't despise it. If it brought you nearer to the lover of your soul, don't despise it. Now many cannot perceive their blindness and thus they will never cry out. They will skip through life never knowing their danger, never knowing their need till they be found wanting before the judge of all the earth, who will do right. Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. Oh, the desperate prayer of faith that God will not refuse. Final verse, verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, go, your faith is saved. You know, let's pause briefly on that. We don't have time to do a deep dive into this phraseology and some of the implications of it, the theology of it, but let us consider a few things. The very first of which is the word go. Here, go is given in the present imperative for our A students, which means start going and keep going. Start going and keep going. Your faith has saved you. Well, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the evidence of things, watch this, which are not seen. Here in our text, we see that Bartimaeus, immediately he regained his sight. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence and the conviction of things not seen. What does this mean? How many miracles just happened here? You say one. Jesus healed Bartimaeus. No. A far greater miracle has occurred. The redemption of a man. Salvation. Healing his blindness is not the headline. It's just a bonus. It's just the cherry on top. Bartimaeus has been given the gift of faith and he has exercised that faith. Beloved, follow this beauty. The blind man who has been given sight is now saved by embracing what he cannot see. Chew on that over Sunday lunch. Meaning there is a greater miracle here. The gift of faith has done its work. Bartimaeus sees. He truly sees. What then is the response to receiving our sight? What is the response when told to go? In the imperative, it is to follow. It is to follow. Bartimaeus began following him on the road. There's your evidence of the greatest miracle. You throw off your robe. You run to Jesus, crying out with a desperate faith. And now you take up your cross and you follow him on the road. Saints, just a reminder 
where that road is heading. What a time to get on the train, 15 miles to Jerusalem. Yet Bartimaeus would do great things. He would be great in the kingdom. This is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Yet I'm sure he would tell you in the words of Adrian Rogers, Who am I? I'm a nobody, telling everybody about a somebody that can save anybody. I cry out in a desperate faith, and he saved me. He gave me sight. He made me to see. And beloved, he is the same God, yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that today we can read of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. That we know his name, Lord, because you gave him sight. Because you gave him faith, and Lord, he exercised that faith. Lord, you are the compassionate one. You are the one who stopped, who hears, who loves the unlovable. And Lord, we know that because we are here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask, Lord, as we break from your gospel for a week, that you would cause this to go down deep. Lord, that the truths, the seeds of this word would take hold, that they would take root, they would bring forth fruit, 10, 50, and 100 fold. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with this flock until we can meet again in Jesus' mighty name.